Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello and welcome to the new episode of the Pharma Launch Secrets podcast. Today, I have a pleasure of being joined by Randy Frisch. He is a best-selling author, speaker, and a chief evangelist and co-founder and president of Uberflip. Uberflip is the leading content experience platform. That's the topic that we'll be talking about today. He is also author of the best-selling book on the same topic of the content experience. And Marketo, marketing automation platform, named him in the the original Fierce 50 Marketeers. I hope I got it right. So welcome, Randy. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. All right. I can't wait to discuss with you today and, uh, about the topic of content experience and, and dive deep into it. Pharma executives who are launching uh, products, knowing that they have 60% chances of failing with a multi-billion dollar investment that went into clinical development, are more and more curious about how to strategically use content to engage doctors and be able to open the door to their reps or use content just without having a reps channel. So uh, when I read your book, I'm really impressed with what you guys are doing. I think this is a very important topic for the pharma industry, medical societies, hospitals, anyone trying to engage doctors and educate them. But one of the things that was first in my mind when I was reading the book is the term content experience. And if you can please share what do you mean by that, whether that category already exists, and how would you describe it to someone who is new to the term? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And uh, to give everyone a little bit of a history lesson, I kind of had to create this term with my co-founder some 10 years ago because the term that a lot of us are more familiar with, I believe, is content marketing. And, and the idea of content marketing should have, in theory, been able to cover all bases. You know, in an ideal world, it would have suggested the art of creating content as well as getting that content in front of our buyers. But over the years, you know, and this happens a lot of time with, with innovation, you know, we intend for a category to be created that covers all bases, but we don't really get beyond first base because we get so bogged down in the execution of getting it off the ground. And, and I think that was the case with content marketing. For a lot of us who think about content marketing, we think about the people on our team who create that content, you know, the people who write ebooks and white papers and thesis, you know, approaches, you know, when you get into definitely some of the medical trades. And that that's some really complex things to do and, and it takes a skill. It's a very different skill set than putting content in front of your buyer, right? How we put it out in front of someone. And I always use the example of of going back to where content, you know, was maybe existing before it came into business, which was, you know, journalism, right? You know, when you think about it, the person who was writing the articles that would land in your magazine or your newspaper was not the same person responsible for getting that newspaper or magazine into people's laps and figuring out the layout of what articles would show up where. These are two different practices. And in digital media, there's opportunities to really dynamically put that together. So, For today, I want everyone to try and think about content marketing as that art of content creation, 
Whereas content experience is more the element of how do I package the right assets for the right buyer at the right time? And that gets us into the world of personalization. And you know, we'll definitely use some examples today, I'm guessing, to talk about things that we may learn from consumer experiences, Netflix, Spotify, or a couple that come up most often, but not forgetting that you know, in the medical trade and as well as other more sophisticated buyer cycles, it's a lot more complex than the average consumer purchase. Yeah. Yes. And there are certain differences, of course, at the end of the day, whether someone is buying a product or prescribing. So interesting enough, for example, for pharma companies, their end user is a patient. The person who makes a decision usually is a doctor and they're, they're prescribing, so they're not paying out their pocket. But the process of going through the experience of learning about something like a concept, going through the funnel, if you will, is pretty much similar. There is awareness, there is consideration, there is decision, there are all these stages, top, middle, bottom of the funnel that lead to someone making a decision to prescribe or buy something. So in a sense, a lot of things are similar, of course, and the difference is, you know, a little bit more harder to produce content and a little bit more regulated. And what you put inside really, really matters because it can affect people's lives pretty directly. However, the fundamentals, at least for what I see, quite similar. Now, also what's interesting for the world of medical education, whether it's patients or physicians, it's often used as a bad example of a content experience. And going into you know good examples versus bad examples, which I would love to hear from you, oftentimes people think, oh, let's say I'm a patient. I'm going to type something you know about the disease in Google, and I'm going to end up with text-based like articles, mostly text-based, which in 2023 is a little bit worrisome. And there are going to be bazillion ads flying around. I read one paragraph. There is already my website is like slowly loading. There are video ads and all that. If you're a doctor, the other side, experience are, I would say, brutal. It's like static, slow, search capabilities, like really, really bad. So, so doctors are almost used to pain when it comes to how the content is delivered, like what kind of experience. I'm just talking about these on-demand settings, conveniently yeah. searching for information. So what are some of the good examples versus bad examples of content experience so we can really understand the concept? Well, let's start with the reality, which is the first thing is there's a lot of different ways to go and create a content experience. You know, we can do that with a content management system, a CMS. You know, sometimes if we're, you know, focused more on blog content, we may have just a really good blog that's living in WordPress or something of that sort that could be more advanced and more catered to a specific industry. But, and even within that, you know, you hit on a lot of the really important factors in terms of speed, in terms of loading, in terms of, you know, adjusting from my mobile advice that I might be on to my desktop. All of these really, though, are the baseline expectations. This should be fixed today. And there's no reason whether you're using a CMS you built something through an agency that can do all sorts of you know fancy things for you, or you're ready to look at a content experience platform. Now, the difference between those first examples I gave you, where you go to your agency and they build you something pretty, and you take control, on the other hand, with a content experience platform, is content experience platforms are typically designed to go beyond just the aesthetics, beyond just the environment, if you will, to start thinking about a couple of other buckets. And those other buckets to me are simply explained as structure and engagement. 
So when we think about structure, and I know, you know, over at Evermed, this is an area that you focus a lot on is, is Netflix, you know, and the analogies with the Netflix-like experience. When we go to Netflix, they have simply structured tens of thousands of pieces of content into categories that help us zero in and have focus. Now, I want to take you back to the example that you gave where a doctor goes onto the web and somehow looks for content. Now, let's assume that you as the vendor selling in, you as that, you know, launching this new pharma product can get on their radar and get to their website. The risk is in any browser, they are a simple click away from just going, as you said, to Google and continuing their search to find other relevant content around that. So what we want to do is we want to avoid their mind going there. We want to avoid their fingers going there. And these are split second decisions that happen as to whether I go and search in other places. So our opportunity, and this is where we get into that structure and engagement, is to structure the content so that there's other relevant content at your fingertips. So that as soon as you're done, whatever article or video or post that you've put in front of someone, the next suggested piece of of content or the next call to action is just as relevant as what they came for. Now, that sounds really basic. We should all be able to do this. If Netflix can do it, why can't we do it? But the the reality of what we often see is that people organize their content, and this is the bad examples that you, you asked me about. The bad examples are people organize their content in the way that it's created. And what I mean by that is often you'll go to a blog post, and the next blog post is the next chronological piece, right? Now, similarly, if you're creating an ebook, it might be the next ebook. Now, there's two things that we don't want there. We don't necessarily want the next chronological piece. We want the next related piece. And if we're looking at an ebook or a white paper, we may not want a white paper next. We may want a video next. So being able to bring together what's relevant to our buyers is the new expectation. Now, when I, when I say relevance, people are probably trying to figure out what do I mean there? Because relevance has been redefined quite a few times over the last number of years. And we're talking marketing here. No one is uh, safe from marketing emails, right? Um, so we can all relate to this. In our inbox, 10 years ago, we used to be amazed. We'd be like, oh my goodness, how do they know my name? How does this big company manage to email me? This is so cool. That was 10 years ago. Today, we know how mail merge works. We know how marketing automation works. We know how these mass blasts work. And it is no different when we talk about a content experience. Knowing my name and throwing my company's logo at the top doesn't do it, right? There's some great technology there to add some personalization on a page. But what we really need to be able to make relevant, as I said, is the content. Because I interview, like you do, CMOs all the time. I ask them a very simple question. What content breaks through for you, right? And the, and the answer they don't necessarily give is the word relevance or personalization. They say things like, this company is showing me they can solve my problems, right? And there's a lot of different content out there, but we have to surface the right content that can solve the problems and not expect our buyer to go sift and search through various pieces of content. Now, we're talking a lot here about doctors, right? And we all know that doctors barely have enough time to see all their patients, let alone do they want to sit there and hear from rep after rep. But when you earn that opportunity to get in front of the doctor, what we also have to realize is if we've hooked them in some sort of way, they're going to go and do their own research. 
The data out there is that people in a buyer journey are doing over 82% of the research on their own, on their own time, without a rep in front of them, without a demo call, without a sales pitch. They do this after hours, you know, especially in the case of doctors. They're not doing it nine to five per se. They may be doing it in the evening or early in the morning. And that's where everything that we're talking about is even more important for this type of buyer. We need to be able to set them up to be successful on their own so that they can find what they're looking for, as I started with, without worrying that they're going to go down the dark funnel of, of Google and search terms. Oh, that is great. And there's a lot to, to unpack there. And um, I have two separate questions. So one, going back, before we go into the content experience, you mentioned something I think it's really critical, which is related to the content itself, that content is relevant. And it really, you know, one of the big aha moments was when I was reading your book was not to think chronologically. I was like, oh my God, now it sounds almost like I sounded dumb to myself, like even thinking chronologically, because at the end of the day, prospect is trying, to your point, to solve a problem, right? So if you think about it, if you think about it, they don't care where was the article or video or audio from April and to May, they care about depending on when they are in that, let's say it's a doctor, let's say where they are in that journey of discovering new product. Maybe they discover, oh, there's a new treatment for this and this. I just heard it. Someone mentioned it to the conference. That journey of discovering product, assessing it, looking at the clinical data studies, and maybe talking to a rep at the end of the funnel, they don't need hundreds of pieces of content, right? That's what they don't want. You said it's super busy. They want a few relevant pieces of content and meet them where they are that can help them solve their problem. In this case, hey, I want to know more. Will this, you know, does this have side effects? What's the efficacy safety profile? Typically, they're balancing that, things like that. So that content relevance is huge. The question for you, does it mean that pharma companies and others don't need to focus from the start building, let's say, a content hub on quantity of content, but rather focusing on specific type of content and then think of quality because they feel oftentimes they feel more overwhelmed <laughs> like oh but i need 50 pieces of content to start with so i wanted to ask you a very practical question on that yeah i think it's a great question i, I think we're definitely seeing people i don't want to say slow down content creation but realize that we don't need to be content engines all the time that we don't have to sit there and be like a media outlet who's saying what are going to be our three articles that we release this week right now it's not that that's not important. You know, new content is a big factor for people in terms of what's relevant in this moment, as well as how search engines work. But what is more effective is mapping out that buyer journey that you just described. And that's something that I encourage everyone to do before they start even creating content. And let's, let's use something as simple as a top of funnel, middle of funnel, and bottom of funnel model. Now, you may not use those terps, types of terms in your organization, tofu, mofu, bofu. Maybe use something like you said earlier, awareness through to consideration and purchase. As we think about those, we want to start to associate what are the challenges on our buyer's mind? What problems are they trying to solve for? As we do that, that allows us to start to think strategically. Now, once we do that, we may realize that we only need a certain number of pieces of content. As you said, we don't need a hundred pieces of content living out there. We need the right set of content to answer the problems at each stage. And when you start to identify and tackle that, you'll find, first of all, you're going to create way less content, which is much more efficient, much less costly. 
But more importantly, you can start to actually go out and progress these buyers through those various states of the journey. And the last thing I want, I want to hit on while we're just talking about this is, you know, the one of the reasons I, I said earlier that a lot of us, you know, list content the way we do is we post it in the way we create it. All right, we created another blog post, it lives in our blog. We created a white paper, let's put it under the white tape paper tab. The idea of a, of a content hub is not necessarily that we just put it all on the content hub. That's just as problematic. The idea is that we use that to segment content. And to do that, the other thing that's probably the least sexy thing I'll talk about today, but really important, is tagging your content. As you're creating content, we what we want to do is we want to reference those stages of the buyer journey that we discussed and create and apply tags so that we understand what content is relevant at a certain stage or perhaps multiple stages. We may create an ebook or a white paper or a blog post that only works at the top of the funnel at the awareness stage, whereas we may have another one that works at the bottom of the funnel or at purchase. Having a distinction of that will allow you to start to think about how I surface the right assets at the right time. Yeah, that's really great to hear. And putting con- pharma companies actually do spend a lot of money on market research before launching a product, massive amounts of money. And usually they have excellent information about the segments of doctors, you know, what are the skeptics, what are the early adopters, what are this and that, and what are those stages of journey of adopting new products. So I think the information to that can be used in a very meaningful way to organize content in the way you described that has uh, tags such as stage of the journey, uh, format of the content, as you describe in your book, those, those like there is enough information to do that, <laughs> but it's mostly not done. So it's great to hear that. And like relevant content, you know, yes, quantity matters, but organize it in a way that can help someone on the other side solve a problem, to your point. I really like that, that the point that you made, because at the end of the day, people don't want more content. They want content that solves their problem. Now, th- that's for the content part, let's say high level. Now, you mentioned several things about the content experience, good, good versus bad. You mentioned several elements. You mentioned structure of the content. Then you mentioned personalization. You mentioned search. And also, one of the things you said is, I come for one piece of content, but I stay for more. And we looked at the numbers last week. I think it was 88% of people who don't have a good first experience with a website or app, they leave and never come back. That's a massive, massive, massive number. And so if the experience is the opposite, which is I come for one piece of content, I saw something, looks relevant, I click, I go there, and then I stay for two minutes, but then I see all this stuff around, I have suddenly like this binge-worthy experience that Netflix is so good at. Oh, now I, you know, stay and I, oh, an hour has passed and I've been watching the content from these guys here. And so what are some of those high level like elements let's like to think through from search to personalization or how do you design that binging experience? Sure. So just, first of all, just to recap the way I think every about everything you just described, I, I, I have a term for this, which the term, first of all, that I rally around a lot with go-to-market teams is that GTM acronym, right? You know, the go-to-market, which is really about launching products, bringing your solutions to market to your customers. And I think at any stage of the journey, whether at the top or the bottom of this funnel that we're describing, uh, we go through a continuous cycle. And that, that cycle is first identify the buyers, right? That's step one. We do that with data, right? It could be data living in our CRM, our customer data platform, whatever lists we've been provided to go after as sales reps. We take that 
you know, that data. And then we use a variety of different channels. You know, the channels could be anything from an email blast to a sales rep outreach to an in-person visit, right? Like these are all forms of channels that we have. You know, maybe the, one of the ones we see most often these days is digital ads as well. You know, the ability to, you know, target and, and continue to go after the buyers. And what's interesting at, at those first two levels of this framework is that they're so focused on who are we going after. We obsess over leveraging that data, not just to understand the right buyers, but also which channel should I use. But then, as you said, that last step, which is the content, very often doesn't reflect those elements of who, who have I been targeting, right? I mean, all of us, you can think about, we, we experience these retargeted ads in our consumer lives. Definitely, if you're in the B2B space, you're being retargeted by companies who say, I know who you are. I'm going to throw your name into the ad. It's going to look great. And I'm going to get you to click the ad. When I click the ad, as you ask, well, then what do we have to do? And my answer is, we just have to do everything we've been doing so far. We have to apply that at this level. So let's walk through some of the things that we can do to make it more personalized. Uh, To me, there's three elements of personalization that should exist on any web page that we drop someone into. The first is you should, when you can, show that you know who they are, right? And those are very vanity, high-level degrees of personalization, saying, I know your name because I've cookied you and I understand, or I'm using intent to potentially suggest that I know your name and hopefully get it right. We can talk about that in more detail later. That's kind of level number one, right? That's no different using your Netflix analogy of me logging in and it's saying, hey, Randy, what do you want to watch today, right? The second level is setting some context, saying, I know who you are. And as a result, everything that I'm about to present to you is relevant to you because of this. And that's usually some copy that's done at the top of the page to help someone understand that everything that's going to flow below is going to be relevant to them. Just because you threw my name or my logo up at the top of the page does not mean that I should now trust you. It may get my attention, but if you can succinctly tell me why everything you've packaged below will be relevant to me, all these content assets, I may be interested. So that's where we can use some of our first-party data, or again, intent data if we need to, to start to say, okay, I know that you're in this type of field, in this area of the world, and you start to weave that into the copy of this short introduction, and now someone might be hooked. Now, a big way to do this is, is especially when you get deeper in the sales funnel, when you're working through sales reps, and a big concept that's being used right now is sales reps who are creating these digital sales rooms. And these digital sales rooms are essentially mini content hubs, as, as we've described them, that allow us to do this. We can say, I know who you are. I've packaged this page. Here's a little bit of context of why I've packaged these things for you. But then the third element is really the key, and that is surfacing the right content. And that's where everything that we've talked about so far, the tagging of content, the ability to find it in index, allows us to surface six, eight, 10, probably not much more than that, pieces of content that are going to be relevant to that buyer to help them progress through their journey. And in the combination of those three, to me, creates this bingeable, relevant experience. If you just do one of those elements, it's not going to cut it. Like, honestly, even if I do the most valuable piece, which is the relevant content, how am I supposed to know that this is relevant? If you draw me on a page with 10 pieces of content, doesn't have my logo on it, doesn't have the industry that I'm in, 
It doesn't have any context. Why am I to think that this was handpicked for me, right? And at the same time, if I just say that I, I know you and then I give you a whole bunch of generic content, well, then do you really know me? So I think it's the combination of being able to say, I know who you are. I'm going to explain context, why I can solve your problems. And then I'm going to show you that here's the content you can use on your own at your own time to go and browse. That's very, very powerful. And I, and I wish, you know, all of us as, as consumers and apart from pharma and the medical societies, we, we have that experience with anything we're looking for because we're constantly looking for something new. We constantly need something new. The, the new needs arise all the time and every day. Now, let's say that that already exists, as you, as you described. There is enough content to inform someone, get to a next stage, and it's relevant and it's presented well, and now they're, they're binging content. I know that Google was doing these studies on how many touch points are needed, and it keeps, seems like it's growing every year. It was three, there was five, there was seven, now it seems like it's nine. Uh, is there anything just curious that you see across the board that talks about that and whether those touch points need to be a mix of online and offline? What, what is the current state of that? Yeah, I, I well, let's talk about touch points because I, I think any of those metrics on their own are probably actually sadly underestimating what we're up against. And what I mean by that is as follows. The the stat that I usually go off is one that talks about 11.2, I think it is, pieces of content that are required. So you got 11.2 there. But then you also have the other reality of, of data that's come from uh, CEB, you know, which became Credit Gartner and then became the Challenger Inc. group, you know, which talked about the number of buyers that are weighing into those decisions. So it's no longer one buyer often who's making that ultimate call. You may have as many as another 10 plus buyers sitting in there and weighing on your purchase decision, right? So think about even in the pharma space, you may be selling into a doctor group. They're all going to have to have a voice in terms of what they may go with and what they may side with. So now you take that 11 times 11 and your number of experiences starts to exponentially grow. Now, you, you may have varieties of different products and offerings and you know different considerations. So you start to realize that the more variables you place in, the more permutations that you're going to have of experiences that we need to create. And that's where we get to a point of saying, well, how many of these can we build ourselves, And how many of them do we have to find a way to do with technology to scale? Now, the, the beauty of, of both of those is I believe there's, there's a role for both, right? We're always going to have a certain stage of the journey that we want to put a lot of art into, right? That's that marketing magic where someone's leaning in and really prescribing and thinking of what we're going to assemble at this stage. But the beauty, as I also said, is at the other end of that spectrum, where we start to leverage technology and we start to leverage things like AI, we can use elements, and I hit on this earlier, the idea of intent data. So understanding your intent when you come to these sites that I've built actually allow me to throw your name in there, to throw your industry in there, to assemble the right content using those tags and matching that to intent data. Now, I'm getting really into the weeds of, you know, the technology and how this is pulled together. And there's a lot of what we built at Uberflip over the years, because what we realized is the mindset around a more account-based approach, which in general, even in pharma, just applies to a more targeted approach to the doctors and groups that we want to go and sell into, right? In that case, we're, we're often broadening the definition of account-based marketing. You know, account-based marketing used to be, I'm going after 10 accounts. These are my 10 accounts. And I'm going to go and put a ton of art into those 10. 
But now those lists have grown because it, it was so effective there that we want to take ideas from that and put it into more of a one-to-few or one-to-many type of approach of marketing. And that's where we, we can't still put that art degree, but we can bring in some of that science to bring in some of that automation and scale. That's great. No, thanks for that. And um, does that require user to be registered? Because one of the reasons why Netflix can really personalize content very well, Spotify, YouTube, is when we are registered. I know you guys, I saw also in the book and on your website that you tested a lot of different ways and you find what works better and increases the conversion rate for that. And I know the personalization is possible to a certain extent, I assume, through gathering all this intent data. Yet the full personalization for all the top examples we're using, people are logged in. So how does that work? That's the question that I often hear from uh, pharma marketeers. Yeah. So let's simplify this to uh, terminology I used earlier, top of funnel, middle of funnel, bottom of funnel. Okay. So top of funnel, we may not know who this person is. To your point, you know, different than Netflix, but in, in the world of marketing, that is where someone is not in our database in any way. You know, in, in any material way. So in, in that case, we can use things like intent data. You know, intent data help us understand based on where you're coming from, what you've done on the web, what you may be interested in, and who you might be. And that allows us, as I said, to kind of take guess. Now, the, the challenge with intent data is it's only so accurate. So we want to always make sure that when we don't have confidence in that data, we have strong fallbacks that we can take someone to that would be more of a typical, you know, top of funnel nurture very broad type of messaging. When we move from top of funnel, though, into middle of funnel, in theory, someone has put their hand up and they've said, I'm okay with being in your database. I have some sort of degree of interest. I may have you know, signed up in an event. I may have you know, uh, registered for updates with you in some sort of way. And at that point, we have a lot of information about that buyer. And at that point, we can start to use that to create an experience that's much more relevant to them. Now, still... In that situation, if we're going after thousands of different accounts or even hundreds, there's a degree of automation and scale that we need to be able to leverage. And that is where tagging our content to be able to pull the right assets is really important. Now, when we get to the bottom of the funnel, this is where more than ever, you could argue this is also the case of middle of funnel, but bottom of the funnel, more than ever, this is where we are teaming up with our sales teams. And we need to continue to work side by side with them. At that point, they have a relationship. They've done a little bit more research about the person they're speaking to. And now we can actually start to not move away from technology, but move away from these big guesses, these assumptions, these bulking of you into some sort of a group to say, I'm going to use a template, but I'm going to edit that template to be highly relevant to the person I spoke to. That could be certain things that happened in the last conversation, a piece of research they may be looking for, something that you know that was causing them to stumble to you know, endorse this product that's coming to market. When you can start to package that for that buyer, now you're at this last stage of personalization that is truly more of a, of a relationship. Right. Yeah. So, and, and in the world of pharma, there is, given that um, there is a finite number of uh, customers, right? You know, there is, you know, when pharma releases content to doctors, the goal is never to have 10 million people watch something, right? There is, you know, 23,000 cardiologists in the whole United States, <laughs> 10,000 oncologists, right? And so 
there is a way to actually have a lot of the data. So I would assume actually even more than other industries in terms of intent, in terms of what they prescribe, in terms of being able to target at an individual level. So, you know, putting everything you share right now together with even like very rich data set that exists, uh, sometimes it's even scary when you look at this, what exists out there. Uh, definitely there is a possibility to personalize even better in the industry, I would say comparing to other industries. One question that also we sometimes get is, oh, we have CMS, like every pharma company has a CMS, whether it's Adobe or Salesforce or Contently or things like that, why they can't do it with CMS? So now I get that question sometimes and then I ask to be shown what they were able to accomplish with the CMS. And then what I see is usually not what we're discussing today. So how would you answer that question? Yeah, sure. So, so first off, I think every marketing organization, every company needs a CMS. I, I don't think the introduction of content experience platforms have replaced them. I think this is a, you know, for those who have read uh, Clive Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, I mean, this is a, a, a typical innovator's dilemma that we're at with the CMS. It was built for IT teams. It's built for coding. It's built for scale in a different way that we need, but it's not built for day-to-day execution and relevance in that moment. And some of the stakeholders who have access to your CMS are very different than the stakeholders that we're talking about in this back and forth. We're talking about marketing individuals. We're talking about, you know, digital teams. And we're even talking at, you know, a lot of this conversation about sales reps. You know, what, which of those people have ever been given the keys to your CMS? So the, the, the first thing is understanding who these solutions are built for. The other element is making sure that these two solutions work nicely together, though, because there is, there's there's got to be trust by the buyer that they are on a consistent experience, whether you're they're on your CMS or they're on some of the other digital properties that you may be running. So picking a, a content experience platform that, you know, can actually host content, I believe, is really important. You know. That was a big part when we started Uberflip, making sure that we could host that content, that it wasn't being iframed in or you know some sort of experience that you didn't have control over. And especially in highly regulated industries, that's really important because you know one of the reasons we trust CMS is, is because we ensure that it's something that's gone through the right governance. So you need something that can have that same degree of checks and balances, that this is content that the organization has approved to be pulsing through. And that way, as we get deeper into some of those users that we talked about, say sales, they're not grabbing assets off Google to send out to their buyers that may not meet the criteria that are required to put this in front of buyers. So the, you know, and and then the last thing I think is you're seeing with these content experience platforms that they're integrating with more of the intent and, and marketing automation platforms than we've seen historically with a CMS. And that's really important because a lot of what we talked about today was how do we use an understanding of the buyer to actually on the fly adjust the experience that's served up? And that's very different than what a CMS is built for today. Yeah. And it's interesting what you mentioned, like, what was the genesis of CMSs? Because uh, that really affects how CMSs function because they're, that is weaved into the architecture. Like think of how CMSs work in the first place and and working with CMSs rather than working against CMSs. This is more like, okay, how can we put the two together for different uh, jobs to be done uh, using the terminology of uh, a little bit of Christensen uh, in order to to have the final result, final the outcome. And then uh, when I know you have a framework, a five-step framework 
for me, when, it, when I was reading a book, it was, okay, you have the content, now what? <laughs> well, now you apply the framework. And, and I thought that that was super useful. You can just, you know, high level share. I feel like that could be, you know, a separate episode. I know we won't be, co- be able to cover it today. Just what are the five steps? And maybe we can have uh, another episode to unpack a little bit for people who have content and now what? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of nice talking about this at the end of our conversation today. You know, this is something that I developed over a number of years, talking to a lot of our customers at Uberflip and, you know, became a big part of the book that you referenced, which, you know, we've, we've kind of skirted around the, you know, the, the book, which is Fuck Content Marketing, Focus on Content Experience. And if you can get past the title, I promise it's it's got great content. And that idea is, not the content marketing is not important. Just to clarify, I, I moved to New York eight years ago, so I passed by a title very easily. You're used to it. Just went on, <laughs> right, <laughs> went on to the you'll get lots. <laughs> <All right. laughs> but uh, you know, it's, it's not that content marketing is not important. It's to your point, once you've created content, if you're not going to focus on the experience, there's actually no point in creating all that content. So much of that content gets, gets unused. Actually, over 80% of content created never makes it off your website into the sales cycle. So what we need to do is we we need to have a framework for how we organize this content. And that starts with the first step is centralization. Centralization is how do we pull all these forms of content together? And what I mean by all forms, we talked about this earlier, having eBooks and videos and white papers on another on different pages is not the way your buyer wants to put up their hand to search. They don't sit there and say, let me let me go to this company's website and look at their white papers. No, they say, I have a problem. So the first thing we need to do is centralize. And that takes us to the second step of organization. And we talked a lot today about organization. Organization is where we start to apply a lot of the tagging methodologies on top of our content to match to both what people are searching for from an SEO perspective, as well as even internal stakeholders, what they're searching for, which is not SEO. That's internal ways for them to find the assets that are going to work at different stages of that journey. Once you've done those first two pieces, you get to start having a lot more fun in marketing. That's my view. And that's where we get into the idea of personalization. Personalization is where we start to build these experiences. And we leverage a lot of what we've done in those first two steps to actually pull the right content together. Once we've done that, and we're skimming over that really quickly, we get to the fourth step. The fourth step is where we distribute content. And this is where, if we have a content experience platform, we can take a single link right? A single URL and drop it into any distribution channel we may have, whether that's email and ad, a sales outreach, whatever it might be. When we can click, put one link versus here's 10 links that you've got to click on to understand what we do. It's a much simpler flow that we can create. And that takes us to the last step of actually analyzing those results. You know, understanding what is working. And, and where that comes into play is it's not necessarily just a loop back to centralizing content. It's actually a loop back to your content creation efforts. Because once I start to understand what's working, as well as where are there gaps in my journey, now, as we started our conversation today, we move away from just creating content like a machine to creating content that's very purpose-built for different stages in the journey that we've built. That's great. And uh, we started to to apply for some of the things that we do. Also, the framework started to discuss my co-founder. I think it's uh, powerful. And then you said it's the result of a lot of thinking on how to think about the content. I particularly loved like the, the groups of tags, how you organize it for that works for 
you know, most of the companies, of course, there are some uh, adjustments. Like here are the four types of tags, and then here are the other two. And and then when you have, you know, thousands of content pieces, you're like, oh, that's how I can organize content. It's really powerful. I took a screenshot of that. I printed it out with the super hard. Hey, five steps, centralize, organize, personalize, distribute, generate results. I think there's going to be another uh, full episode on that to unpack. What I'd like to do in the uh, last uh, couple of minutes, we do a quick questions and quick answers on um, to, for, for people to get to know you. So I have just very few rapid fire questions and answers. So what's your favorite industry buzzword of 2023? I'd say it's, it's go to market. I, I think that's uh, a great way to unite sales, marketing, and success all together. Oh, yeah. I see it in SaaS. That's becoming also the big word. What's the best book you've read in the last year or two that stands out for you? Uh, you know, I, I like taking inspiration from books to tell a great story and have a business underlying. I, I loved Shoe Dog and I loved, uh, what's the Disney one? Ride of a Lifetime. Two great books. Oh, I haven't checked that one. Shoe Dog. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's a classic. And uh, anyone entering the world of content in 2023, just out of college, what's the one sentence advice, one word advice you would give to them? I would say talk to your sellers. Find out what the problems are that buyers actually have because it's it you know they have a direct line to those people every day. Okay. And who in the world of content marketing would you take out for lunch? Would you like to take out for lunch? Ooh, that's a that's a great question. I've been fortunate to sync with so many great content people. You know, one of the people who's been a great mentor for me in early days, Jay Bear become a good friend along the way. So I would do it just because Jay and I get along and he's got some great thoughts in terms of, you know, how to really listen to customers in terms of the content you put out there. Excellent. And the last question, where can people find you and your company online? Yeah, sure. You can go to uberflip.com. That's a great spot to learn a little bit more about content experience and ways that you can actually build a lot of the things that we were talking about today. In terms of me, you know, I'm pretty active, I'd say, on LinkedIn. I got my own podcast too, so you can check that out. You know, when, when you're done listening to all the episodes of Pharma Launch Secrets, that one's called The Marketer's Journey. All right. It's been really a pleasure having you today. And then thank you for everything I learned and the listeners will learn uh, when thinking about the content, because that will be one of the big topics over the next years in the world of pharma. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed. Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.